Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2114 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our ongoing series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week one on a five-week series titled, Becoming a Radical Disciple. I pray that it will be a conduit for learning and encouragement. So if we can have the kids up this morning. I gave Paula a chance. She says, I'm fine to, that she thought I would be fine to do it. Be somewhat qualified. So come on up, guys. Today we're going to talk about something that you may be a little bit aware of. Have you ever seen a butterfly? Have you ever been to a butterfly house? Yeah, where they fly? Did you catch a black butterfly that we that it couldn't fly? It couldn't fly. Was it hurt? It put it on a flower and then it got some juice and then it flew away. Well, that is neat. What a great story. As we all need some energy. Today we're going to talk about one of the verses we're going to to read in the main message today is Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And it talks about being transformed, like a butterfly would be transformed. And the verse says, don't copy... And a robot. And a robot. Yeah, I got one up here too. Yeah. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you. It is a good, pleasing, and perfect will. And see this picture here? This is a caterpillar. And this is why when the caterpillar says, oh, I think something strange is happening with my body. I'm going to attach myself to this limb and hold on so I can see what's going on. And then it spins a web around it, this little cocoon it's called. And then it waits and it waits. And during this time is what we call metamorphosis. And a butterfly and moth develops through a process called metamorphosis and it's the Greek word that means transformation or change in shape. And that's what our verse means today, is our minds are transforming to think the way God wants us to think. And then the butterfly starts forming in this cocoon, and it breaks out, and it struggles, and it struggles really hard. And we want to help this butterfly so it can get out. But you know, if you help a butterfly when it's struggling, it won't be able to fly when it gets out. Because of the struggle, it strengthens its wings and allows it to be strong so it can fly to flowers and get the food that they want. So this is called metamorphosis, and it's, called, it's transforming us. And yes, I do have a transformer too. This was, if you look at this, just like God's Word gives us instructions. Can you hold this for me, this package? And see this, what this transformer looked like at beforehand. But see here, before we see what it turned into, there are a series of instructions. And I put this, did it last night because it took me a long time. I'm not really good with transformers. And I thought, man, that would take the whole message if I took that long to put this together. So these series of instructions are like God's Word. They teach us how to transform from who we are into what God wants us to be. And it turned out to a jet. 
You like that? You do? Well, will you share it? Okay. Well, think about this. When you think of the, see this transformer. Hey, we have little transformers that are Nana and Papa. You have them at Nana's and Papa's? They are They, they are neat. Wow, that's a good grandparents to give hey, you, you have transformers. Like this or like this? Silver. Okay, this is a jet plane, and it turned from this creature into a beautiful plane. Just like the butterflies turns from an ugly caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. So what I'm going to do is we're going to study this, and the adults are going to study this in our message today. So when you think about this jet, think about being transformed by God. So this one you can take. And you can have it, and I'll give you both each a sheet on the butterfly to think about what a butterfly does to transform. Well, you can transform it back at your seat, okay? How about if you take this, and I'll give you some pages too, some coloring pages. I know, you're more interested in the transformer than the coloring pages. I would be too. In fact, I am. So let's see. You have a, oh, they're stapled together. How smart of you, Paula. I was going to say, these are all the same in here. Duh. <laughs> okay. Now take one back for your brother also. Coloring sheet. So if you could take this and during the message, think about this butterfly being transformed. All right? Okay, you guys are set. Can you carry a couple crayon containers back? I don't know. Let me. Oh, can you get this? Oh, your daddy has some back there already. So, yes, you can take that back and transform it while you're listening to the message today. <laughs> okay. Is that enough of a message? Should we break now? All right. And as you know, we're talking about transforming today. And the title of this new series, because the last couple of weeks we spent on making radical choices, and then last week we talked about the radical teacher. Now we're starting into a new series. We spent 11 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters in Matthew. But this week we're starting on becoming a radical disciple. And for some of you, you might feel uncomfortable thinking of yourself as being radical. For others, it might be empowering to you. And let's just say that I, too, have a bit of a radical element in me, I have to admit. But I suspect that most of you in your lives have some area of radical area that you, you think about within your own life. But you might ask, why am I using the word disciple instead of Christian? Why become a radical disciple? Well, it might come to a surprise to you that the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. I thought it was a lot more than that. It appears three times. And the first one is in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Dr. Luke is writing about the Syrian Antioch church where the disciples were first called Christians. And this is a significant because Antioch was known as an international community. It was a port community 
where a lot of different nations went through Antioch. And consequently, the church was international also. It was an international community of believers. And therefore, it's appropriate that its members were called Christians to indicate their common allegiance to Christ. And it helped them also to come overcome their ethnic differences. You remember, in the Old Testament, it was all focused on the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Now, Christ, the radical teacher, came and taught that now the kingdom of God is open to everyone throughout the entire world. So it became an international community. And it indicated that they all had a common allegiance to Christ, which overcame those ethnic differences. But as a matter of trivia, the term Christian means little Christ. And even the outsiders of the church would say, use it mockingly, saying, well, look at those little Christ over there. So it wasn't always a, used in a loving term. A lot of times it was used in a derogatory manner. Two other instances or occurrences of the word Christian provide evidence that it was starting to become more commonly, commonly used. When Paul was on trial before King Agrippa, he was challenging him to see the way. And Agrippa says in 18, or Acts chapter 26, verse 27, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? The Apostle Peter also wrote the word Christian in one of his first letter. It was during a time of growing persecution for the believers. And he found it necessary to distinguish between those who are being persecuted as criminals because they've done something wrong and those who suffered because they were Christians. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 says, But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Now, both the words Christian and disciple imply a relationship with Jesus. And although perhaps the word disciple is a bit stronger, because it inevitably means that we have a relationship between a pupil and a teacher. And during the three years of Christ's public ministry, they were first called disciples before they were ever called apostles. And as disciples, they were under the direct instruction of their teacher and Lord. And in some ways, I think it might be better if we would use the word disciple even today, or that would have continued on through the centuries, because then Christians would be more self-consciously a disciple of Jesus and take more seriously their responsibility of being under discipline. And that's where disciple comes from. We don't like discipline in our lives, but we don't think, at least in my mind, I don't think of it the same way as being referred to as a disciple. But that's what it means, continuing to learn. And my concern that we who claim to be disciples are not serious enough in our commitment to the Lord Jesus. Because we don't want Christ coming back as he wrote in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and said, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? For genuine discipleship is passionate discipleship. And that's where my next word comes. Why did I use or choose the word radical? I was never very good at English in school. Still aren't that good. But Radical is an adjective which describes a noun. And the English word radical is derived from the Latin root word radix, 
and initially seemed to be applied to political, a political labor label to people with both liberal and reformist views. So the two extremes, that's what we sort of think of as radical. But then it came to use more generally that it's the opinions that went to the very heart or the root of a particular subject. And when we think of radical, we think of somebody that has an unrelenting commitment to something. And we now need to put the noun and the adjective together and ask the third question. Why should we be radical disciples? And the answer, when you think about it, is obvious. There's different levels of commitment in the Christian community. Jesus himself illustrated what happened to the seeds that were, were in his parable of the sower when they were thrown on the rocky soil. They had no root. They could not take, they didn't have the radical element in them to make a change, to be transformed like the butterflies are transformed into a plant. And that word is what we can think of when we think of radical. Our standard way of avoiding radical discipleship is to be selective, choosing those areas in which our commitment suits us and staying away from those areas which will be costly to us. But because Jesus is Lord, we really have no right to pick and choose which areas that will submit to his authority. So my purpose in this series titling it Becoming a Radical Disciple is to consider eight character traits of discipleship. And these are often neglected and need to be taken seriously. And we'll explore at least one character trait each week. We might double up on a couple of the weeks here, um, which might be shorter. But the first one is nonconformity. And that's our character trait we want to focus on today. Let me explain why. The church has a double responsibility in our relationship to the world around us. On one hand, we're to live in, serve, and witness in the world. Our occupation, if you remember, the occupation is what we were taught in the Sermon on the Mount is what our true identity is as citizens of God's kingdom. That's our occupation. And our occupation was to be salt and light. But on the other hand, we need to avoid becoming overly contaminated by the world, which causes us to lose our saltiness and want to hide the light that we have inside us. So it's a two-sided paradox. We should not attempt to escape from the world to preserve our holiness, and we're not to sacrifice our righteousness or right living by being conformed to the world. And this concept is one of the major themes throughout the entire Bible, namely that God calls out his people for himself, and he summons us to be different than everyone else. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 tells us, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, You must be holy because I am holy. Now, what do you think of when you think about holiness? I think in my mind, I always thought, well, somebody special. It's somebody that's more righteous than someone else. But in God's economy, when he talks about holy, anything could be holy. And I'm going to illustrate this with these two vases today. They're two identical vases. And to me, just a casual look, would be the, they would be the same. But say, we buried my dad, but say if we had cremated him and put his ashes in one of these vases and then sealed it up tight, and then we would set that aside 
as something special to us because it contained my dad's remains. So I would set that aside as special. And whereas this one is just a common vase that we might or might not put flowers in. And that's what God does when he sets us aside to be holy. He sets us apart for a special purpose. And that's what it means to be holy. If you look through the descriptions of the tabernacle and then the temple, some common dishes would be set aside to be holy because they were used in the service of God. Other ones that were identical to them would not be considered holy because they were just common everyday dishes that you used in your house every day. And that's what holy means. And I'm going to set these down so I don't knock them over and be in trouble um, for knocking those over. Those are ones my granny left us in the house, so they're special to us. But that's what it means to be holy, to be set aside as something to serve God. The foundational theme of holiness recurs in the main four sections of Scripture, in the law, in the prophets, teachings of Jesus, and the apostles' teaching. And let me read a verse in each of those. First in the law, God said through his people, to his people through Moses in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. So do not act like the people in Egypt who you, where you used to live, or like the people of Canaan where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. You must obey all my regulations and be careful to obey my decrees, for I am the Lord your God. So that was in the law. The prophets tell us that they didn't follow that. God's criticism is noted in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 12. For you have refused to obey my decrees and regulations. Instead, you have copied the standards of the nations around you. Instead of being set apart as holy, they became common use. In Christ, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at a few weeks ago, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus spoke of the hypocrites and the pagans, and he simply said, don't be like them. You're unique, you're different. And fourth, and that's our theme verse for this entire series, is Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when Paul wrote to the church of Rome, he says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's what we are doing as radical disciples. We're transforming the way we think. And here's God's call to radical discipleship, to radical nonconformity to our surrounding culture. It's a call to develop a Christian counterculture, which we talked about in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, as citizens of God's kingdom. We are called to engage with the culture. We're not to go into a commune and to isolate ourselves from the culture, but we're to engage the culture without compromise. And there's four modern-day tr trends that really threaten to swallow us up, which we must resist as we become radical disciples. And these are some big words, and I have a problem speaking, let alone throwing big words in here. But the first one is the challenge to pluralism. And pluralism is diversity. And we hear a lot about diversity today. And diversity in and of itself is okay. It's good to be, have a diverse outlook on life. But there's one area 
where the concept of diversity cannot enter the Christian realm. And that's the diversity that rejects the Christian claim of the finality and the uniqueness of Christ and condemns a sheer ignorance or arrogance our attempt to transform anybody, let alone everybody, into what the secular culture sees as merely our opinions. They say, you can't tell me that is the only way. That's not diverse. When dealing with pluralism, we must proceed with great humility and with no hint of personal superiority like the nation of Israel thought they were set aside for God so they had a superior attitude about being God's chosen people. That's not how we have to look at it, but we must affirm the uniqueness and finality of Jesus Christ because Christ taught himself in John 14, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The word unique means one of a kind. There's no other like him. And Christ was unique in his incarnation. He was the only God-man. He was unique in his atonement. Only he died for the sins of the world. He was unique in his resurrection. Only he conquered death. No one else did. Therefore, Jesus is uniquely competent to save sinners. No one else possesses those qualifications because there is nobody like him, and he has no rival, and he has no successor. So as far as pluralism goes, we have to hold strong that Christ is the only way to God. And the second widespread secular trend that Christians have to resist as disciples is that of materialism. Materialism is not simply accepting the reality that we live in a material world. If that were the case, every Christian would be a materialist. Since we believe that God created everything material in this world for us to enjoy. Christianity is the most materialistic or material of all religion, but we're not materialistic. Materialism is a preoccupation with material things, which can smother our spiritual lives. Jesus told us not to store up treasures in heaven, and he warned us against covetousness. So did, and so did the Apostle Paul, urging us instead to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, generosity, and contentment. And he was drawing on his own experience when he wrote Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. And as we later, when he was writing to his protege, Timothy, giving him instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, he says, yet true godliness with contentment is itself great, great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything when we leave this world. In other words, life on earth, this pilgrimage that we're in, is between two moments of nakedness. We came into the world naked. When we leave, we'll be just as naked. So it would be wise for us to travel light because we won't take anything with us when we leave. The third trend that threatens us is ethical relativism. This means that ethics change based on their current societal concepts of what morality is. All around us, we see our moral standards seem to be slipping away. It's happened throughout the ages, but we seem to be in a period where it's more acute, especially in our Western world. 
People are confused as whether there are any absolutes left. And as a result, relativism has permeated the culture and is, we see it even seeping into the church. Is it any surprise that we live in a confused culture that has no sanctity for human life, who would just as soon riot and kill people, or abort babies, or cease the life of elderly people? Another aspect where we see an impact in our culture is on God's design to, for marriage between a man and a woman, which is ignored to the point where some people can't even figure out whether they are a man or a woman. And this is a sad state when we're to that point. There's no ambiguity about this in God's word on this particular subject. You're either XX chromosome or you're XY. You either have male parts or female parts. That's the way God made you. Now, you, there's maybe those that wonder about that, but there's no ambiguity in God's word, and there's no ambiguity scientifically. Those who promote science say, science is good for this, but not good for that. But scientifically, God has already made the choice. Over against these trends, Jesus Christ calls us, his disciples, to be obedience and, in obedience and conform to his standards. Some people claim that Jesus didn't speak about these things, but he did. And from the very beginning of Scripture, it is clear in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created human beings in their own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And Jesus also taught the same lesson in Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So when we are confronted with relativism, we as radical Christian disciples must disagree with the modern culture and what it says. Let me be clear, though, we are not to be completely rigid in our ethical decision-making, but we're to sensitively apply biblical principles to each situation that we face. We must remove the plank from our own eyes that forbids us to see, because we have sin in our lives, forbids us to see what's right and wrong. So first, before we condemn others, let us remove the plank in our own eye, and then, as those who are seeking the truth come to us, we might help them remove the speck of sawdust that's in their eye by teaching them the truth. The subject of relativism hits awful close to home for Paula and I, for Paula and me, since we have family members who have made life choices that we just can't agree with biblically. Nevertheless, as radical disciples, we must love and accept each person. That is what God called us to do, even if we cannot agree with the choices that they have made. You and I will not stand before God for the choices that are made by other people. In the end, God will ultimately judge the decisions that each one of us make personally. And central to our Christian behavior is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord and remains the solid rock foundation for our lives. So the essential question as disciples and together as a church, who is Lord? 
is the church the Lord of Jesus Christ, so that we are liberty to edit, and manipulate, and accept what we like, and then reject what we dislike? Or is Jesus Christ our teacher and Lord, so that we're believing and obeying his teaching? We don't want Christ to repeat what he wrote in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? To confess Jesus as Lord, not to obey him, is to build our lives on a foundation of sand, which we know will collapse. John 14, 21, those who accept my commands and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. So here we have two cultures, two value systems, two standards, two lifestyles. On one side are the choices of the world around us. On the other side is God's revealed, good, pleasing will. Radical disciples really shouldn't have a difficulty making those choices. It's pretty clear in God's word. But now we come to the fourth contemporary trend, and that's the challenge of narcissism. I know narcissism has been around a long time, but to see our political leaders and some of the media people, it just seems like it's rampant today. Narcissism comes from the Greek mythology about Narciss, Narcissus, and he was a Greek figure in mythology. Narcissus was coming along, and I'm using this to represent the pond of Narcissus. He was going along, and all of a sudden he came upon this, this pond, and he saw his reflection. Now, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak for women, but I do know when men see themselves in the mirror, we like what we see. And it's just almost universal. I don't know of any guy that doesn't. That's just the way it is. Well, Narcissus was walking along, and he came across a pond, and he was so beholden by what he saw. That man was so beautiful, so good-looking, that he kept staring and staring and staring until he fell in the pond, and he drowned himself. Now, that's a Greek mythology, but it's so applicable. So narcissism is the excessive love for oneself and unabandoned admiration of self. Today's modern culture calls us to look inside ourselves, to explore ourselves for the solutions for the problems that are within us. We do not need a savior or someone from somewhere else. We can be our own savior. But unfortunately, the concept has led to an increasing segment of our culture that are just completely self-absorbed. It's so prevalent today. But as imagers of God, we should have a level of love for ourselves. I won't deny that. God commands us to love ourselves because we're to love others as we love ourselves. But we're to love God and others in the same way that we desire to be loved. We have to understand this love in order to love another person appropriately. The type of love is a selfless agape love, which is willing to sacrifice ourselves for the service of others. It's like a parental love for their children. If you saw your children running into danger, you would sacrifice yourself to save your children because you love them and are willing to make that sacrifice for them. We have to understand love in order to love. We should 
attribute it, that love, and a combination of self-admiration and a self-denial, affirming, as David wrote in Psalm chapter 139, verse 14, when he said, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. So we know God's creation is good, and we should love that he's made us the way we are. But everything in it comes to us from our creator. Everything we are comes from our creator and redeemer. But really realizing on the same manner that we have weaknesses that can be traced back to the fall and our personal choices. It's a great relief, actually, to turn away from an unhealthy preoccupation with oneself to the healthy commandments of God. To love God with our whole being is to love our neighbors as ourselves. For God intends the church, we here at Putnam and the Church Universal, to be a community of love and worshiping and serving our community. Everyone knows that love is the greatest thing in the world. There's a song that said, love makes the world go round. And the Christians know why. It's because God is love. A person who loves not, lives not. For living is loving, and without love, the human personality disintegrates. And that's why everyone in the world is looking for authentic relationship of love. And we've just considered these four major secular trends that threaten to engulf us as a Christian community. In the face of these, we are to be called not feeble-minded conformists, but we're to be called to radical nonconformity. As we face the challenges of pluralism, we are to be a community of truth, standing up for the uniqueness of Christ. As we face the challenge of materialism, we are to be a community of simplicity and pilgrimage. As we face the challenge of relativism, we are to be a community of obedience to God's precepts. And finally, as we face the challenge of narcissism, we are to be a community of love. We are not to be like we reeds, reeds that are shaken by the wind, bowing down to every gust of public opinion, but we're to be the movable rocks of bedrock in the riverbed in a mountain stream. We are not to be like floating fish in a stream. Now, I'm not a fisherman, so Matt probably could correct me, but fish generally will swim upstream against the current and not just allow current to carry them, unless they're dead. And then they float with the current. We are not to be chameleons. Lizards that change colors according to their surroundings, but stand out visibly against our surroundings. What then are Christians to be like if we're not to be like reeds or dead fish or chameleons? Is God's word entirely negative, simply telling us to avoid being molded into the shape of the world around us? No, Christ's word is very positive, and we are to be like Christ. In next week's message, we'll cover that next character trait, the trait of radical discipleship, which is Christ-likeness. For Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Think about that. We're siblings with Jesus Christ. What a greater honor could we ever ask for? So during this series on becoming a radical disciple, 
I would like to ask, me, ask you to do one thing each week, is read through Romans chapter 12, verse 2, at least once during the week, other times if you can, which is don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this word. Help us to be radical disciples, not conforming to the world, but transforming the world as you transform our minds, Father. Just like the butterfly goes from a, a caterpillar and is transformed or metamorphosed into a butterfly, help our minds to be transformed, to be pleasing, to do what you want and not conforming to the world. Be with us now as we share communion with one another in remembering the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly. Love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.